Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's podcast. Today is the final drawing for the lockdown giveaways. We've had 10 amazing weeks and some really cool products. Giant thank you to Mike Chi for donating so many of these. It was really nice of him just to send a bunch over to help people. Uh, really nice guy, really awesome products, so I'm always help, uh, happy to help promote those. This week's needs no introduction. It's a RetroTink 2X Pro. Uh, I think everybody listening to this probably already knows what this is. Ray Command did an awesome video on the Pro. I did the original video on the original 2X Classic. And then we've done tons of updates on news posts and these weeklies, keeping everybody in the loop of very cool firmware updates that have been happening with these, which there's even more this week. So um, I'm definitely still going to be doing giveaways, just not the weekly. I think everybody's trying to get back to some sense of normalcy and life's opening back up. So, uh, you know, I think it's a good time, a round number of 10. I think it's a good time to call this one quits, but I do want to keep doing them. And I do love uh, having a product to review and then being able to do a giveaway drawing for that afterwards. I think that's a really cool way to help promote products and to, to get the word out there. Unfortunately, a lot of these giveaway videos didn't really have a lot of views on them, which is a little strange because I thought a lot of people would want to watch and, and comment on a video for free stuff. But uh, I'll have to try to find a way to do these giveaways for, for random other stuff in the future that would generate more traffic and, and really get these products out or, or get these products in front of more people. So any suggestions at all, um, I'm always listening. Yeah, please post in the comments. I, there's been a lot of really amazing suggestions and stuff over the years, so I'm all for it. But anyway, now for the final lockdown giveaway drawing for the RetroTink 2X Pro. Okay, time to do the drawing. As always, I'm going to be doing this in real time for everybody to see, just to show that there's no funny business going on. All of these have been completely legit uh, and done everything right in front of the camera, including the day that I forgot to speed it up, so everybody had to sit at my silly face staring at this thing. Okay, and the winner is John Lawless. Thanks very much, John, for participating, and hopefully we'll continue these up in a different way sometime in the future. First up, the Sayo team has released a few different updates to their optical drive emulator, and there's a long list of changes, but with it came a whole bunch of things that broke afterwards. So um, it's kind of strange. I guess this is one of those things where I would go through and read each one of these fixes and then maybe check out the forums and see what people are saying. Um, maybe you're, it's a scenario in which the games that you want to play are fixed, so you want to upgrade, or if it's already working fine for you, probably leave well enough alone. But I'm not really sure why there's always so many issues with the SIO. Is it that it's trying to go through that port in the back and not just be a traditional optical drive replacement? Um, is the PlayStation hard to program for? Uh, I am, if anybody has any thoughts on that, I'd really like to, to read anybody's opinions in the comments. Um, my gut tells me it's just because of how 
the device works by plugging into the rear port. But I don't know. It's kind of interesting to see, but I'm certainly appreciative that they're continuing to try to fix it in post updates. But this is definitely still a product where, you know, while it's getting more mature, I would read through which firmware version you have and what firmware is available and see what games work or don't work for you. Obscuratory.com has just posted a full write-up of the history of Sim Refinery, which was made by the same group of people that made SimCity for the Super Nintendo. And it's kind of an interesting story about how once the Sim game, the original Sim game was released on the Super Nintendo, a bunch of companies kept contacting Maxis saying, hey, can you do the same for our companies? We want to see, you know, we want to practice building our refinery or whatever. And the team kept saying, no, it's, it's a game. It's not like that. And uh, eventually they just gave in and said, whatever, we'll make games for businesses, I guess. Um, and then that team got spun off to its own company. And then Sim Refinery, I guess, was one of the games from that company. It's a, a pretty long read, but I, I really, I, it was something that I didn't think I was going to spend as much time reading as I did. I started reading it going, oh, you know, I guess I'll just flip through a couple paragraphs. This seems to be like a novel. And I ended up reading all of it. I thought it was a really interesting story that kind of went into the people behind it and and how they started working on these games and then simulations. So um, while this is more, it's not really focused on the game part of things, if you're into history or just weird facts, then definitely give it a read. The MD4A team has just posted results of some SD card testing, and I thought that their findings were pretty interesting and certainly something I wanted to share. Now, I know not everybody listening likes to get into the super nerdy side of things, so I'll keep this as much of an overview as possible, but I highly recommend reading the full document if you're really into this stuff. Um, but there's two things that people run into when you have SD cards in any kind of device like optical drive emulators, ROM carts, whatever. Um, the first is just basic SD card noise. So you'll hear like a buzzing or a crackle when the, uh, the SD card is accessed. Um, now there's different reasons for that. That's a whole other thing in itself. Um, but to skip to the end, you know, there's been a few brands and specific models of SD or micro SD card that have found to be quieter. But the other problem is that there is stretch on it. Now, the best way to describe that is when the SD card's constantly being pulled as a CD would, sometimes uh, the audio doesn't fall into place exactly where it should be, which is most likely a result of it not being fast enough to keep up. So uh, the MD Fourier team, and I think specifically Bernie in this one, was able to do a full analysis of a bunch of different cards, uh, and they determined one specific one, a Samsung Evo Select 256 gigabyte, seemed to perform overall the best. It wasn't the quietest, but it didn't have any kind of stretch involved in it at all. Um, and there's different versions of the card, and each of the other versions perform okay, but there's been uh, tests come back with kind of issues here and there, whereas the 256 one has been pretty solid all the way through. Um, I purchased one for an upcoming ROM cart. I'll definitely be testing it in that one. Um, I haven't had time to do much of this testing myself. Uh, but I just find all of this stuff both fascinating and really helpful because um, if you're a, a fellow nerd that doesn't really care about the details but just wants to be able to play with headphones on without hearing buzz, then here you go. There's the answer. Buy that Samsung card and hopefully it's big enough. Uh, but if you also, if you design products, if you're working on um, any kind of uh, like open source thing with this stuff, now you could kind of have more tools and more guides to test your own products. And we've already started to see people in the gaming world use MD4EA 
to test their products before launch. So that's kind of awesome, considering this is a fairly new piece of software. Uh, so once again, if you're really interested, please check out the full PDF, and I think it's also just available as an HTML file, and get the full story of exactly what's going on with this. Video Game Perfection just listed two output solutions for the Commodore 64. One is an S-Video mod that's a more basic mod um, that that's kind of like your standard S-Video mod for the C64, but a nice, well-built board for it. And the other is a component video mod that replaces the RF module and taps directly into the video signals, giving you true FPGA-based component video output. So I don't think the projects themselves are new. I just think that there is finally good stock of them available. So you don't, hopefully, you don't have to worry about going to the links after hearing this and having them be sold out. Uh, but I know that C64 stuff like this has always been in high demand. And hopefully now there's just a good place to go pick them up if you need them. There's a new firmware update for both the RetroTINK 2X Pro and 2X SCART that adds some pretty simple but pretty highly requested features. Um, one of them is a sleep mode, so you, if you press and hold the filter button for three seconds, the device will turn off, and then a short tap on the filter button will turn the device back on. And there's also an auto shutoff if no video input is detected for 30 seconds. The red LED will flash three times to indicate that the video output is powered down, and then the output is automatically resumed when a valid input is detected again. Um, so this is actually a, a huge deal if you're using automatic HDMI switches. I haven't had a time to test this, and I also have very bad luck with HDMI switches, so I'm probably not the best person to test this. This might be a job for Dirk Swizzler, but... Um, the, honestly, uh, I'd like to see features like this, even though they might not be as super exciting as some of the other stuff I always uh, am very excited to talk about. Uh, stuff like this really is a big help to certain people's setups. Um, there's also full EDID readout to detect DVI devices when the video outport is cycled, uh, and there's a low-res YPBPR plus scanline filter mode, which I also haven't had time to test, but um, I'm always interested in new ways of seeing scanlines. Uh, and, you know, that last 480i scan line, which I guess was also available in the OSSC, and I just haven't ever had a chance to try. I really loved that one. I thought that was really cool, and I thought uh, I thought that was enjoyable for noisy TV shows as well. So um, another great set of updates for the RetroTank products. Uh, definitely check it out if you own one. I just released a video that lag tests retro scalers using the time sleuth and in the same process teaches people how to do the exact same thing themselves. Um, the goal of this video was really to just to show people that these numbers are real. I think some people saw my slow motion lag, uh, lag tests and didn't understand them. And even if you don't really understand what's going on with the time sleuth, I hope that I did a good enough job showing that the number in the top left should be zero milliseconds, ignore the microseconds, and anything over that is added lag. Um, and I think that seemed to resonate with people. So hopefully, you know, we'll finally start to squash these rumors of a little lag doesn't matter. And, you know, oh, that's they're exaggerating about that. I think these hard numbers really showed the truth. And the one that blew me away was the level hike cable. Uh, and I even included a very sincere apology in that. And I've been saying that all of those pound cable lookalikes were the exact same and all bad. So luckily, I didn't ever actually um, recommend any of them. But the level hike one was uh, it sometimes double the lag and it used unshielded cables to get composite video as sync, which uh, anybody that's seen any of the shielded cable videos knows how terrible that can destroy the signal. Shielded cables won't matter, but unshielded, wow. So um, yeah, those things are absolute garbage. And I really hope that people will find 
People who are so enthusiastic about this stuff that they find time to comment about it, I hope those same people will take the time to pick up a lag testing device and repeat these tests themselves. Because there's certainly been a group of people out there that that say the lag tests uh, of those SCART to HDMI devices, the ones that were designed for use only with TV signals, some people seem to think that lag on those aren't as bad as others, that different modes have different outputs. Some people seem to claim that theirs miraculously has zero lag, and the one, in quotes, one that I tested does. I've tested well over 10 of these things, probably a lot more than that, and I just forgot about it. But yeah, it's uh, it, it's been such a hard thing to squash these rumors. And I know at some point I got to give up, right? If you can't convince people the earth is round, I can't convince everybody that some scalers are not supposed to be used with gaming consoles. But I don't know. I'm trying my best. I'm hoping to present it in so many different ways that it's impossible for any reasonable person to argue that lag is not good for retro gaming. Certain scalers are terrible to use and certain ones are are excellent. Um, And I also showed a little glimpse of the GBS control software. Uh, I uh, I'm going to go into very big detail about this soon, but my only little blurb about this is the GBS by itself is meh. The GES with the uh, the control software that Rama made is amazing, but it's not a replacement for most people for existing scalers. There's a few things that it does absolutely amazing, and there's a few things that if you're on a budget, you go, oh, that's absolutely good enough to hold me off until I get the other thing. But it's another tool in the tool shed. In, in most cases, it's not replacing existing tools. So, I mean, all of this stuff is compliments. Uh, I think we should all be lining up high-fiving Rama for making this software available for free for everybody. I just want to make sure to keep things into context and keep people's expectations straight. Just because I've seen a couple of over-enthusiastic commenters go, yeah, that's an OSSC killer. Throw out your retro tank. And it's it's exactly like saying, hey, this is the best hammer I've ever bought. Throw out your screwdrivers. Like totally different things. So love it. Think it's awesome. Uh, and I can't wait to show people both how to put it together, how to use it, and what specifically I think that its main uses are um, and how people could really take advantage of it. I keep seeing people talking about the tininess. Um, so I wanted to do a quick write-up about it. I'll spit out the facts first and then add my opinion afterwards. But um, it's a reverse-engineered NES motherboard that uses the original CPU and PPU, um, and there's no price or availability, but it's basically going to be just a very small, brand-new replacement for the original NES, um, and you have to use the original chips for it. So, uh, you know, I, I like projects like this. I'm a big fan of things like OpenTendo, and, but I, I just kind of don't get the purpose of it right now. Um, stuff like OpenTendo, if somebody's manufacturing, uh, and I believe uh, Nick, aka Low Budget, just did uh, a drop-in replacement motherboard too, I completely understand that. You take your original NES, you take out the CPU, PPU, put it in these new boards, drop them in, and now you don't have to worry about leaky and old caps. You know, Hopefully somebody will come up with versions of those that add easy ways to add the NES RGB or high-def NES kits or other ways to enhance it. But I just don't understand the purpose of something that only outputs composite video that requires you to cannibalize either NES or Famicom consoles. Um, 
there were two other uh, projects that tried this before. Um, one of them was the same developer, Low Budget, did the Super 8, which was good, but that was more of a, hey, if your NES got smashed up, you know, you could still use that. Pull the chips out of them and put them into this. So that was kind of cool. And then the original analog NT required cannibalized consoles, and that was obviously a non-sustainable model, and that ended fairly quickly. They moved on to the FPGA stuff. So I just don't understand why a new project like this is being done, and especially because there's no enhancements. So composite video looks terrible on flat panels, uh, going directly into flat panels. Looks okay if you go through a retro tank or something like that. Uh, While composite video does look awesome on CRTs, why would somebody buy this rather than just buy a NES and get the nostalgia factor too? So I might just not be understanding the purpose. I, I'm wrong all the time. I always admit and apologize when I'm wrong. It's just a project that I don't really understand the purpose of other than, hey, this is neat. Look what I did, which by the way, that's awesome too. I just hope they're not trying to do a large production run of something that's going to destroy old consoles when you could really be taking that time to to take the FPGA open source implementations and try to make them your own. Uh, I think that would have been cool because you know, then you could have a tiny little box that plays original cartridges that could also output even just basic 480p HDMI would be awesome for people that wanted a cheap NES, but I guess we got this instead. So please feel free to correct me in the comments. Please try to do it with some tact and <laughs> not just be like, look, you moron. Like actually take a moment to explain uh, why I don't get it. Maybe I'm missing something, but I read every piece of information available on their website. So kind of an interesting project, but I just don't really get it. Kevin Mella is now opening pre-orders on a Dreamcast link cable. Now, this is going to be made the same way that his Virtual Boy link cable was made, which is a very high-quality connector. I own one of those, and I could definitely vouch for its quality, to the point of um, even that tournament I did, we used that one and a lower-quality one because it was slightly longer, and we had to we had to end up not using the lower quality one and use his and just pull the virtual boys closer because the other one didn't hold up very long. So can certainly vouch for their quality. Um, and you know, there were other versions of this available that, uh, one of them looked pretty shoddy and, uh, the other one was not really easily available and didn't look like the best quality either. And I think they were all relatively expensive and, you know, the original HKT 9500 Tizen cable, for anybody looking for the original, is extremely rare and expensive. There's only four of them I could see on eBay now. Complete in box is asking 300 and um, just cable only is $160. And, you know, complete in box is probably cool for collectors. But if you were looking to just connect a couple of Dreamcasts together, it's probably better off buying buying just this cheaper brand new one. Um, the only downside is there's only five games that I know about that are compatible with the link cable. Um, Ferrari, a racing game, two uh, airplane games, um, a Tetris game, which is always kind of neat to play different ways of Tetris, and Virtual On Oratorio Tangram. I'm definitely murdering the pronunciation of that. I am sorry. Uh, but still, you know, stuff like this is always unique and interesting. And we have a bunch of people around me here in the New York City area that I know 
know are giant fans of the Dreamcast. So I talked to Kevin again, and uh, he's going to send me one of the cables to demo. So maybe we could have a fun little, you know, couple of couple of people linked up and do a, a Dreamcast stream like that. Um, I don't know, maybe Ferrari the racing game and Tetris just for fun. But if you're a Dreamcast fan and you're looking for all of the the weird things that you could do with it, you're going to have to add this to your list as well. Uh, once again, collectors might want to go look for complete in box or original, but people that are actually going to be using it for gaming or testing or whatever else might want to buy this. And I hope that this also leads to some kind of more homebrew available solution for it. Um, you know, I'd certainly love, I know this is wishful thinking, but I would love to see four-player Daytona so you could use your Dreamcast to be kind of sort of like the arcade. Um, I know the uh, the version isn't the same as the arcade version, but just saying. Hopefully there's cool stuff that can be done with this with some ROM hacks and using this cable. But very interesting. Thanks to Kevin for making this, and um, hopefully I'll be able to try it out relatively soon when they're released. There's been some more updates to the Fenrir optical drive emulator project for the Sega Saturn, um, and it added a couple of cool features. The first is a direct boot option. So previously, whenever you would select your game and launch it, it would first boot to the Saturn BIOS screen, uh, which added like 10 seconds of boot time, or if, a little, if not a little bit more, but also gave you the opportunity to go in and change any settings if you wanted, like access your save games, change the clock if you needed to do that, or, you know, I, I guess play the music from the CD-ROM if you wanted to play, you know, use a, a music player from it. Uh, and now if you hit A to launch the game, it'll just direct boot the game and skip all that, saving the time. However, there's now also the option to press B to launch, and uh, it says CD player, but essentially it does what it used to do. It boots back to the BIOS. And of course, the option is still there that they previously added. If you press C, it'll boot to whatever cartridge you have in, such as an action replay cart. So this is starting to become really full-featured, and you know I think all of these options are, are really great. And you know most of the time you'd probably want to just skip, but now you have the ability to do whichever that you'd want. Um, there's a few games that I believe have issues with direct boot, but if you just press B or C instead, they boot fine. So uh, I think that's marked down in the compatibility list. And speaking of which, 8-Bit Mods updated the compatibility list, and it looks like they're nearing 100% compatibility, um, You know, which is impressive if you consider the time that this project was announced till now. And that's also why I didn't dig deep into compatibility in my review, because even while I was reviewing it, there was like three updates that, that fixed things. So, uh, you know, I'm glad I approached the review the way I did, because it's, it's already gaining progress. The only thing that's sadly not there yet is the ability to, um, to access multiple disc games. However, a lot on the Saturn tell you to save your game, and then exit and boot into disc two. And that way, I guess that was done so that people could just boot to disc two next time. But in the context of an optical drive emulator, now you just have to select the second disc from the menu. So um, for those games, you just save the game, reset the console, boot disc two, and then you're right back where you were. But I think there's still a few that just say, okay, insert disc two, and that's still not solved. Uh, also, there's not yet the version for the other Saturns, only the 20 pin. So hopefully, hopefully those will get out there soon enough. But I don't think anybody could fault the team because these updates are coming quick and they're fixing a lot of issues. So for the full list of, uh, of bugs and stuff, check out the post. Um, follow 8-Bit Mods on Twitter if you want real-time updates to the firmware. And if you don't really know what a Fenrir is, please check out my, uh, my review on it because other than these updates, the review is still pretty solid to what exactly it is that the, um, the device does. 
Well, that's it for this week. Before I go, I just want to mention that I did a live stream with Jimmy Hoppe, Yehel from Wrestling with Gaming, Ian, the historical nerd, and Voltar. And while I certainly wouldn't call it news, because it was just all of us kind of shooting the shit and hanging out, we did go over a bunch of crazy topics. I mean, we were all over the place, talking from deep technical stuff that Zach and I were working on, to how we edited our videos, to the beer we were drinking, to taking comments uh, or taking questions from the comments. I don't know. It was kind of all over the place. So uh, if you're into weird ADHD style podcasts, I just figured I'd let you know it was up there and post the link, but certainly wasn't something I would call newsworthy and post as a post on retro RGB, but just wanted to mention it here. Anyway, as always, thank you so much to everybody that watches, that listens on audio only, that participates nicely in the comments, and especially everybody that supports on Floatplane or Patreon or YouTube, because it's you supporters that's keeping all of these videos, all of the crazy behind the scenes research and development and all the other stuff going. So thank you all very much, and I'll see you next week. 